Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, music interviews for serious listeners. You may have heard of our curated music discovery app. The podcast lets us dig deeper and get to know the creators of that music, as well as others that will broaden your horizons. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. This episode is the cello-wielding, multidisciplinary artist Okori Johnson, known by his stage name OK Cello. Based in Atlanta, he's fresh off a residency at the Kennedy Center and has worked throughout the country and around the world. Thank you very much for uh, making time for us. No problem. Glad to be here, man. We've enjoyed um, digging into your albums and videos and, and talks and... Um, uh, trying to get our heads around all of the things that you are, um, oh. which is not uncommon when we're dealing with our artists at Craft Fruit Music or our podcast guests. But I think it's fair to say that uh, you're kind of next level. <laughs> in that oh, really? um, wow. And we, um, we want to kind of get into um, the, the kind of the path to becoming okay. Cello. I know you're an mm. English teacher by, mm-hmm. by trade and, uh, mm-hmm and all of these things. So we'd love to have you tell us a little bit about how, you know, your evolution into, into what you've become. Wow. Gosh. I, am, am I allowed to start 41 years ago? I mean, yeah, <laughs> we've got nine hours. You've got nine hours. Gotcha. 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 Um, we, we like to celebrate uh, all artists, but especially those with meandering paths and late gotcha. blooming. Cool. That's our thing. And those who are in their 40s, like we are. Yes. And okay, look, so I, I'm just the, the demographic squarely there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, I was a fairly agreeable kid, at least as I'm told. I mean, it's hard to have a really accurate memory of yourself, especially about those kind of things when you're young. But um, I don't remember there being a lot of conflict or many arguments. And, more. you know, I would say 90% of the time I did what I was asked to do. Um, I think I, I enjoyed music. I think I might have been a musical kid. I am not aware of a burning desire to be an instrumentalist, although I can imagine that I wanted to play an instrument, right? Because it's a cool thing that you get and you get to learn something different, something new. Um, but I don't have any awareness of, oh my God, I just really wanted to play an instrument. I really wanted to play the cello. I think the way that I remember the beginning of the uh, relationship with the instrument is that my mother and I decided that I would play an instrument. And we decided that I would play an instrument at an orchestra, at an organization called DC Youth Orchestra, which had been around for that time, probably for 30 years. My mom, maybe not 30, maybe 20 years. My mom played in that orchestra when she was a kid. Hmm. Um, And uh, they uh, do a really amazing thing of taking anyone at a beginner level, um, and they will teach you on any instrument in the orchestra. 
Uh, and the only classes that were really open were viola and cello. Violin was completely full. I was a late blooming. I guess that's a, that's going to be a theme of this interview. Uh, <laughs> a late blooming six year old. So I didn't have my two front teeth. They were gone. You know, yeah. most six year olds have their two front teeth at that point. So that meant when wood, woodwinds and brass were out, hmm. it was really small. So the bass was just going to be an instrument for my mother because there's no way I would have been able to carry it. Uh, her sanity would not have abided uh, <laughs> percussion. Right. Like she just was not going to have me banging on things. Oh, I was yeah. probably already banging on enough. And lots, uh, of, lots of doors are closing in this story. <laughs> lots of doors are closing. The only two that were open were viola and cello. My mother played viola uh, when she was a kid uh, and uh, suggested that I do something different. So the different was the cello. So I think maybe the actual way to tell that story is maybe the cello chose me or maybe the universe kind of chose the two of us together. Um, but I don't remember there being like a burning desire or any clear agency around the cello. Um, so I enjoyed it and started to take to it. And then about a year later, another kind of small but important moment uh, was that I was working with a private teacher and uh, he insisted that I get a new instrument. That instrument would have cost my mom about $800 in 1981. And she's a single mom, would live with my grandmother, not so much so because we're dependent upon her financially, but, you know, it's just, it's, she doesn't have a lot of money. She certainly doesn't have $800 yeah. in 1981 to invest in an instrument. Um, and so uh, the teacher insisted, and I was like, hey, a new toy, absolutely, I want that. <laughs> so the deal that my mother and I made was that if she bought me this instrument, I would have to play until I graduated high school. That's a contract I'm not sure that would stand up in a court of law. <laughs> But yeah. I took it. And um, anytime I had moments of not being sure that that's what I wanted to do, she would remind me that at eight years old, I verbally committed to playing until I would graduate from high school. You know, listening to the, uh, the, the artist that, uh, you know, 20 some odd years later emerges as OK Cello, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a, a stretch to imagine that this is somebody who had a, a formative experience with the instrument where they got good technique, good intonation, good tone, but there's a, there's a, a savvy about improvisation and a, and a vocabulary with improvisation that makes me think something else happened that was fundamental in the next 20 years. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, I guess, you know, that's a wonderful segue into the next 20 years. I went to go major in English at Morehouse here in Atlanta. And the weird thing is that I was majoring in English. They didn't have an orchestra program or major, and they had only an orchestra for minors or for not even for minors, for like non-majors, for people who weren't really serious about their instrument. And I'm playing in this orchestra that I don't enjoy because it's not very good. And I'm walking back from that orchestra practice one day, and I'm in kind of a, a dorm that's on the periphery of campus with not a lot of oversight. But one of the things that was really cool about it is that it had balconies. So people kind of hung out on their balcony and I was walking back to my dorm and there was a buddy of mine. He wasn't really a buddy. I didn't know him that well, to be honest with you, but I knew of him. We traveled in similar circles. Um, he was standing on his balcony playing uh, Plush by Stone Temple Pilots. Hmm. Uh, this is a historically black college. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with Morehouse, but it is like 98% black male. Right. Um, which means it is like probably 80% urban and um, black culturally. Um, and there are not a lot of people listening to grunge <laughs> right. in, the in 1994, let alone playing it. And when I say this guy was playing it, he had an acoustic guitar. 
it was, oh, I think it was fall or spring. I can't remember when it was, but it wasn't super cold. But he was out on his balcony with a, a skull cap, a flannel shirt, <laughs> black jeans. He had a chain hanging from his wallet that connected oh, to his belt. He fully you know, embraced the whole thing. And All he was in. playing plush, right? So this was, that's a lot. That's yeah. a whole lot. Um, I did the absolute creepy thing, the creepiest thing that you can imagine. Instead of saying, hey, I like your playing from downstairs, I entered his side of the dorm, followed the music to his door. And instead of knocking on the door, like a nice confident person would do, I sat on the floor outside of his door, my cello next to me, and just listened to him play. Which is not like stalkery, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's strange. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's you know. Um, so for whatever reason, he stops playing, and I'm assuming he's going to start again, but he ends up coming outside and looks down, and he sees me sitting at his door. I don't know this guy well, so that's important to say. Uh, he's, he looks at me, he's like, can I help you? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. and it's, like, it's bordering between reverence and, and uh, a surveillance activity. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean? um, and uh, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. I know this looks strange, but I, I was just listening to you play. I love, I love listening to you. It's great, man. It's really cool. He's like, okay. Um... <laughs> um I'm like, so can I just sit here and continue listening to you? He's like, mm, no, no, I don't think you can do that. That's a little weird. <laughs> but uh, what is that next to you? I was like, oh, that's my cello. I just came back from, you know, the orchestra, the AUC orchestra rehearsal. He's like, oh, that's cool, man. You play the cello? I was like, yeah, I play the cello. It's like, bet. Well, if you want to listen to me play, bring your cello in and, and let's jam. And, and this is the moment that you're, you're speaking of. And I'm, I say to him, uh, I don't know. Yeah, do you have sheet music for that? Yeah, yeah she, I, pretty much I said it's a cello, you know, it's cello, you know what I mean? Um, and, and he, uh, I mean, like, he's still my best friend to this day. Uh, and wow. his insistence that I play is pretty much the most important moment of my nearly adult life. Because everything that is important to me, particularly the whole playing by ear and ultimately or eventually improvising, hinges on me saying yes to that moment um, and not wanting to say yes, because again, it's the cello. But well, I said yeah, that's that. a big contrast between not having the confidence to knock on the door, but then being able to shed the inhibitions and actually go jam with the guy. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. Right. And so he, he invited me in. Uh, I sat down on his balcony. He went through the chords for, uh, for plush and I stumbled onto a part, and an hour later, we liked it. Three hours later, because we stayed and played a long time, um, I had parts to two other songs, I think two of his other originals. A week later, we put on a little four or five song concert. I don't remember where. I think it was at Spelman somewhere in the music room. And then a week after that, we were a band. We called ourselves Us, capital U, small s, exclamation point. And... That is very much the birth of adult Okori. Um, a lot of things would happen after that moment. Uh, I'd already been exploring being an artist to some degree. I was in a poetry, performing poetry group my freshman year, really all through college. But that was one of the ways that I thought I might kind of step into being an artist. I wanted to be a writer. Um, I knew that by 
Uh, I knew that when I was in my senior year English class, an elective called Black Voices, and mm. I was really moved by Gordon Parks, and I just really wanted to be a writer. So that's what I thought I was going to do. And this was perhaps the second major moment where the cello was kind of like, yeah, it's about to be all about me right now. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, so um, sometime later that year, uh, he and I were playing at a literary magazine party and we bumped into NDRE. Um, she wasn't NDRE at the time. She was India Simpson. Her middle name is, Indi- is RE, but she went by India. Mm-hmm. Um, India was just starting out. You know, she was just getting comfortable on the guitar. She had just recorded a song called uh, Yours and Mine. Or maybe she hadn't recorded it. Maybe she was thinking about recording it. Uh, and so he and I were playing at this literary magazine. She bumped into us and said, I really like what you all do. I'd like you, Corey, to come record a cello song, a cello part for me. So I ended up writing, probably still to this day, my favorite cello part for any song hmm. um, for her song that she's never recorded. Um, we talked maybe about three months ago and kind of reminisced on the fact that we never recorded that. Maybe one day we would or should. Um, anyway, so that is kind of the beginning of this artist identity and this primarily playing by ear skill set that I'm developing. Uh, so that is a really important part of my musical development, um, being the only cello in the room with acoustic guitars, electric guitars, keyboards, bassists, drummers, playing soul and folk. Uh, you know, it, shortly thereafter, I ended up playing with a goth band and so playing some kind of electronica rock. And, you know, it was just, it was a really weird and wild time. Um, But that's kind of how all of that started. Um, I ended up staying in Atlanta after I graduated from Morehouse, much to my family's chagrin, and trying to be a a starting artist. (laughs) I did that. I did some other things. I also, I met a woman that I would marry. We're no longer married, but we, you know, got married in 2000. It was a really cool, artsy life. Uh, Starving artists, we both had like legit jobs. Like I worked for the uh, United Way and she worked for the Chamber of Commerce. So we weren't really starving, you know what I mean? It was just we were young people, artsy people with no real financial or otherwise responsibilities and uh, just cutting our teeth, trying to figure out how we created and what we made. And um, that's really what I was figuring out. And that education ended precipitously when all of my artistic endeavors broke up. And so those three projects all within a year of each other stopped. Um, And uh, my girlfriend at the time, my ex, uh, and I both had degrees and we were like, well, maybe we should grow up. And that would be the next seriously important moment when I put the cello down. Got married, decided that we needed to get real jobs. We moved to DC, I became an English teacher. Uh, she became a nonprofit manager, um, and the cello did not factor prominently into those lifestyles. But what's weird about it, again, is that the cello refuses to be dumped. The, there's a lot that happened in this period of time, but none of it is super important other than to say that slowly but surely, month by month, year by year, the cello crept back in. And then I had this great idea in 2011 to leave the classroom and to produce a film. Uh, my wife at the time was super into it, thought it was a great idea. I don't know that I thought it was a great idea, but you know, she thought it was a good idea. I should go ahead and make it happen. And the way that I would continue to contribute to the household would be 
to teach cello lessons, to do session work, to play in bands, um, and to make as much money off of the cello as I could. You haven't seen my movie because it didn't get produced. People would tell me, oh, I think you're really smart and you're a great writer, uh, but your movie is too quaint and cute and it's not gonna make anybody any money. It's too expensive. And go write us something with vampires or with zombies or car crashes or infidelity at least. And so I was really miserable uh, during that period because I was you know, at a fairly uh, nice, uh, prep school teaching English, had a relatively good cushy job that I enjoyed. And I left to, you know, produce a film that no one's going to see because it didn't have vampires in it. Yeah. So I was really starting to feel very sad. And I just started playing around with my looper. Uh, and the, the bottom of this uh, sadness kind of hit on my 40th birthday. My cello was hooked up to this looper. And I was really just trying to find my way around it. But I'd also started this practice of just improvising, um, not in any particular genre, but just playing what was in my heart because it kind of felt like prayer and it also really made me feel much better. Hmm. Um, so I did that uh, the morning of my 40th birthday and I stumbled onto this song, this bass line that uh, I captured on my looper and I just sat there and I bawled. I started crying to it. Um, and I, you know, I've told the story hundreds of times just because it's such an important part of my origin story. But the truth of the matter is I don't really know why I was crying. Um, I think I was crying because I felt it was eloquent. Um, I felt like it was saying better what I had been trying to say in the entire screenplay in just a baseline. Um, but it was so compelling to me that it made me want to improvise over top of it. So I spent the next two and a half, three weeks just improvising over that baseline whenever I could. And then um, about six weeks later, not only did I have a song for that baseline, which I would call 40, but I would have four or five other original songs. Cello has actually been at the center of all of these major decisions, just operating somewhat surreptitiously, right, in the background. Um, but what happened 
on my 40th birthday is that it stepped out of the background and into the foreground and said, Hey, listen, you did a pretty good job up to this point, but just follow me. I got it from here. (laughs) Yeah. And so to fast forward a little bit, you, you, uh, recorded a couple albums, did, did a number of things and for a performing artist, we're seemingly gaining altitude. And then we hit 2020 where a number of challenges faced all of us from the shutdown of live music to a long overdue racial reckoning. And some people shut down, um, but it seems to be a number of artists, yourself included, decided that this was kind of go time. And I noticed that you had a couple of projects emerge from that stir crazy and hopefully, mm-hmm. and did you see that as, you know, this, this was kind of your, your time? You know, no, <laughs> I don't know if I saw it as anything. Um, I, there, there are two or three things to which I was reacting. One, uh, I, I was an administrator at Drew Charter School at the time. So I had been used to a decent salary coming in. And in addition to that, for the last couple of years, I'd been making a decent salary as Cello. So there was a lot of money coming in. Not that we depended upon, you know, greatly, but that we were used to. Um, and so all of a sudden the pandemic was like, oh, wait a minute. That's a whole revenue stream that seems gone. So I got to figure that out. Um, two, uh, I'm already in this world of marrying my cello with technology as a looper. The looper, just for, for our listeners, yes. we've had other looping artists on, but as a reminder, is it allows you to create layers that you can record something that you play live and then it loops it and you can then build layers and play uh, accompanying yourself. Yeah. Essentially creating an ensemble of you, yep. right? Um, and, uh, and so what I was seeing, and I think you all might have been seeing it too, was that, you know, there were two camps. There were a lot of people who were used to playing in bands and used to playing completely acoustically or at least plugged up like analog, but not necessarily digitally. And they were struggling. And then there were these other folks who were figuring out how to do these online concerts and were creating digital music. And, and I was like, well, I'm actually way closer to this group than I am to the other group because one, I'm just by myself. Two, I'm already using technology. And three, uh, I kind of need to figure out how this revenue stream thing is working. Yeah. So I ended up, I started out just figuring out how to go live. I've been actually developing that as well. Um, I've been playing these things called improvisation meditations, which were really me just cutting on like an Instagram live camera or a Facebook live camera and playing for 20 minutes, 30 minutes at a time, just whatever came through. So I'd also been developing an online audience and a relationship with that audience where I was delivering live online content. So then going to like doing an online show didn't seem so strange. And uh, I got lucky um, that I was able to perform live and I did a bunch of performances, some that were self-produced and some that people asked me to do um, online. Um, And then I was like, well, you know what? The other thing, if I'm gonna do all this online content, I might as well well start recording myself. So I bought recording gear and figured out how to use that. And then all of a sudden this racial reckoning part was like, you know what? Yeah, we can't perform. Yeah, we can't go out in the world quite the way that we needed to or that we wanted to, but the world is burning right now and we need people to have commentary. We need people to, you know, say things about it. Um, and based on the work that I was doing in DEI, based on just the work that I'd been doing as OK Cello and my just like newly acquired knowledge of how to record, people started asking me, hey, can you put 
um, cellos this? Or can you help, can you help me to record this? Or, you know, do you have an idea for a cello line that would, you know, go with this poem around, you know, racism, right? And that work um, captured the attention of some other people at Emory University who were like, yeah, you know, can you do that in more of a extended structured environment as an arts and social justice fellow? Um, and I don't know if they knew what they were asking, but essentially what they ended up asking me to do was to be a teacher, was to be a writer, was to be a facilitator, was to be a composer, was to be a film producer and to be a presenter. All the things that for the most part I've done in my life, it was yeah. the most beautiful and unified experience that I've ever had. And it is actually an experience that I am actively trying to recreate every moment of my life right now. Because um, while I enjoy being a performer, while I enjoy being a composer, while I enjoy being a writer, while I enjoy being a film producer, and while I enjoy being a storyteller, um, I love doing all of those things at the same time. And hopefully was the first time that anyone had given me the opportunity to do so. And that experience oh. at Emory led to the, uh, to the, to the film, hopefully. Yes, it is. That it, the, hopefully was the final presentation of that um, arts and social justice fellowship at Emory University. I'd like to turn to uh, your most recent album, your third uh, recorded album that's called uh, Beacon. Yeah. And I, I'm really fascinated by the, the, the concept uh, you had for the, uh, for the album. I, I enjoy listening to uh, musicians who've been in our cultural collective consciousness for a long time, uh, reflect on their early work and say, oh yeah, I remember like, yeah, we were in the studio, this happened or that happened. It's kind of like unearthing a time capsule uh, mm -hmm. of a, you know, of a, of a period of their life for an emotional space. But the, uh, the, the, the album as a whole, you kind of uh, describe as a, as a, a love letter to your future self. Uh, exactly. And this, this, this concept of kind of projecting a, a resonant frequency forward in time that this future self will receive and that will influence the person you become. Um, and that, that's, that's a really unique uh, idea uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about where that, that particular concept came from. Oh, wow. Um, that song is the only other song I would say that is kind of as emotionally and spiritually, uh, challenging or, or, um, charging to me is 40. Like, so 40 started everything and Beacon brought a lot of it into focus. Um, I, I've, I think there's been a lot of imagining and, and bringing things into fruition that's been part of my career, right? Because there just are not an abundance of looping cellists. They're not a bunch of looping cellists who are trying to be storytellers. They're not a bunch of looping cellists who are trying to be storytellers specifically about experiences and art forms in the African diaspora. Um, and there are not a lot of cello players who are doing any of those things um, who <laughs> are sustaining themselves, you know, uh, which, you know, knocking on wood, thank God that I'm able to do. Um, but there's been a lot of imagining and hoping that it will exist and sustain itself in the real world in my career a little bit. Um, and that song kind of brought that reality to light for me. 
um, and, and not even brought so much that reality to light for me, but that I so desperately, um, I so desperately want to do what I'm doing. Uh, I, I, need to, I need to be honest about the entirety of what I just said. I desperately want to be able to be an artist that makes enough money to have a comfortable life that will continue to support my children and my girlfriend who will be more than that. Hopefully mm -hmm. sometime soon I'm working on that. You know, like I, I, I want to have a lifestyle that supports my daughters and my soon to be wife. Yeah. And because I have long wanted life's work that somehow allowed me to feel like I was giving back for all these crazy weird blessings that I've had. Mm -hmm. um, there's a story, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to come across it, but when I was four years old, I was blessed by Pope John Paul II on the steps of the Shrine of Immaculate Conception in Washington, DC. Hmm. And that set forth a really strange cascade of events in my life that um, have always made me feel uh, like I had a spiritual dharma, like I had a spiritual debt um, that I had to pay back, that uh, I had to make some kind of contribution. Um, and while I didn't talk about this at dinner parties with people often, you know, not everyone knows that I was blessed by the Pope, that is literally this constant hum underneath of my consciousness that mm. I've got to make, I've got to create, I've got to do something, I've got to give back, I've got to contribute something that is of significance, right? Mm. And so that desire, the older I get, you know, on the, this side of 40, things become a little bit more intense. Um, right around the time that I was coming up with Beacon, my marriage was going through some crazy weird stuff. Um, and I don't know that Beacon became, it had all of the intention and I understood what the song was about when I wrote it, but I wrote it maybe about a year before my marriage would end. And when I recorded Beacon, it in that moment was endowed with all of that hope and all of that desire and all of that um, energy and emotion that I had for who I wanted to be. And somehow I just needed to believe that I was gonna pull through this. Um, I needed to believe that not only was I gonna pull through this, I needed to believe that there was purpose to what I was doing. I needed to believe that like, the work that I'm doing on my instrument that I'm doing with this, this, this album is significant in some way, if it's only just significant to me, but like that it's significant, that it's an engine, that it drives. Um, and so that's where all of that came from, right? And so the, the, the story of it, like, you know, comes from me, like trying to make sense of all these things I'm feeling and trying to like connect what I'm feeling to that song, that whole idea of the fifth dimension and that the idea that art and emotion can travel between dimensions into the fifth dimension to find the future self that you want to be. And when that future person remembers who you are now, then there's been this kind of cosmic connection between that person you're becoming and who you are now. And it just kind of cements the likelihood that you'll become that person.
idea that um, that art communicates on so many different levels, like on so many different uh, planes. And sometimes the most important planes are the ones that we have absolute no awareness of. Um, and that's what I was really trying to harness with this, this album beacon, with the song beacon, even with the concept, mm -hmm. um, even just with me getting an opportunity to talk about it. I just feel like I'm putting energy out there into the world to do this work. Um, because this work gives me a sense of joy and purpose and belonging. Um, and it also makes me feel like people feel that way when they hear my music as well. Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the Music Discovery app, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask you two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Second, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the curated streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.